Just a heads up, this episode does contain some adult language. I've always been a foreigner. And I remember my brother saying to me it was kind of nice to not be the Irish person anymore. Hi, welcome to the Creative Curry Podcast. My name is Dinesha. I am a storyteller and writer, and I am on the search to find the recipes behind a creative life. So what we're doing is we're bringing in creatives from all industries into the studio for me to interrogate them. I mean, question them and have conversations with them about the work they're doing and the stories that they are telling. This episode's guest is Kat Brogan. In 2011, Kat won the BBC Edinburgh Fringe Poetry Slam. Originally from Northern Ireland, she has performed internationally in over 20 countries. Kat has a master's as a writer-teacher, was a full-time spoken word educator in London, and has done a TEDx talk. In April 2016, she came to Malaysia, funded by the British Council, to research spoken word education in Kuala Lumpur, and has been based here ever since. In today's conversation, we get to talk about Kat's experiences growing up, and how much her community and her mother have influenced the person and work she does today, whether as a spoken word poet or as an organiser. We also get to talk about what it's like being a foreigner in the Malaysian art scene. Towards the end of the episode, Kat shares two of her poems titled Breaking Bread and Pairing Socks. So here's Kat Brogan. Kat, thank you so much for saying yes to this podcast. That's my pleasure. Thanks yeah. for having me. Um, the first question I ask everybody is, where is the best curry? Well, my favorite curry is beef rangdang. I don't care where it comes from. It's all good as long as it's in my mouth. Okay. Um, my favorite place to eat in Malaysia has to be my partner's mom's kitchen. Okay. But if you're looking for a recommendation... I really like this restaurant called the Lankin, um, okay. it, which is kind of opposite Merdekaria. Right. In um, just in this Bukit is Lanka Gassing. Cafe, the one. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, and like their food is super good. Okay, it's just any really particular nice. dish? Like it's all nice as far as I'm concerned, okay. and it's just lo- it's just like really authentic, and they're super friendly, and it's a lovely place, and and they've got like. Really good pickle and stuff. Oof. Yeah, I'm a massive, I'm a massive pickle fan. Okay, okay. Yeah. Is what's the price point like? It feels a bit expensive, isn't it? It's a little bit expensive. Okay. It's like it's not your mama. Okay. You know, it's kind of like maybe like twenty or something like that. So it's like a little bit special. Okay. But it's it's really good. Cool. Um, <laughs> and we've I think we've talked a little bit. I'm trying to think. Like I'm trying to recollect. Like all the conversations we've had about writing and creativity and things like that. And I think we've talked a bit about uh, being from Ireland and things like that. But we've never talked about your childhood. Hmm. So I'm curious, what were you like as a kid, creatively? So I was like super loud, and as you can probably imagine. <laughs> and I was also like a really tantrum kind of a kid. Um, I was like that one that you would sort of feel like sorry for the parents if you saw them in the in the supermarket. Oh my god! Like you're just cringing. Like yeah, it was oh. awful. I was really bad. But I'm super lucky because my parents were really good at handling me. It would be like mom would like march me around the vegetable patch like come on yeah, and um, and I really when I really feel like when I discovered writing and performing that that really helped me because like I mean this is when I was like four you know, and I feel like. I just, 
kind of had all these things that I needed to get out, but I was like, I, my body couldn't do it, you know? And um, so I started like writing and performing when I was about eight years old. And I had some really awesome teachers who really encouraged me to do that. And we also had this thing called the fesh. So basically in Ireland, um, every little town has these competitions for like Irish music and dancing and singing and all the instruments and stuff. And because I'm completely tone deaf and have two left feet, I did the poetry reading competitions and the prepared reading ones. And like I used to get gold medals and stuff and when I was like six. And my mom was really into the fesh when she was young. And she used to do a lot of amateur dramatics. And so did my granddad, because there's like a really strong amateur dramatics um, culture. What, what is amateur dramatics? So it's basically like, so I'm from a really super rural place. Like that's kind of what you have to understand about me. My village is like a thousand people outside a town of 20,000 people. It's like 30 miles from the border. It's 30 miles from the nearest dual carriageway. It's like fields and sheep and cows and farmers. Basically, you, what you'd imagine, and Enid Blyton book, like, right? <laughs> Enid Blyton farmhouse. It's Enid Blyton was in Northern Ireland. Right, yeah. <laughs> in yep, the yep, 80s. Yep, yep. <laughs> <laughs> so not quite so like lashing of ginger beer. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> Cucumber sandwiches. No. Right? Yeah. It didn't really, more like potatoes and bacon. Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, it's like super rural. But the thing about that is, I think because in Northern Ireland, um, because we've had like the British for the longest and um, the state wasn't really there for you. And it's like also because it's been emptied of its population for so long and the rural areas have so little infrastructure. A lot of the cultural infrastructure is like very community based. And it's all very grassroots. And and it's kind of amazing, really. Like, these places that we call town lands, because they're so small, they don't have a shop. Like, they're not even a village yet. They're just, like, a house. And then two miles later, there's another house. Like, that kind of kampong. Whoa. Yeah. Okay. And they all have these, like, these, like, amateur dramatics groups that put on plays every year. And then they have these, like, festivals in, like, little villages where all the the plays come and perform their play like one every night and there'll be like a judge and at the end of the week it'll be like best play and best actress and best so there's like, like, like your own Tony Awards but yeah but super small Carrick Moor wow Carrick Moor Drama Festival and there'll be like 200 people in the in the parish hall the church hall um every night of that week you know and um and the quality is amazing it's phenomenal and I think that's the interesting thing um, in Ireland is that because for so long we didn't have this arts infrastructure, that it, it really like grew up in the church hall and also in the Gaelic football as well because every area, like Irish football is like super strong. And they're also re- like everybody who does it for free, like the volunteer culture is crazy. Like, and they're super organized. They all have their committees and they all fundraise from within the community itself. And then there's like this amazing infrastructure where you've got a hall and you've got a bar and you've got a stage and you've got a football pitch with like changing rooms. But there's like nothing else. Like that's, it's like totally rural. But then they've got this like amazing 
sports and arts facility, like in the middle of nowhere. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And it's funny because it's one of those things when you leave and then you look and you feel like and you can't wait to get out of it because you're like, oh, my God, there's like nothing here. There's no art gallery. There's no even there wasn't a theater when I was growing up because it was being rebuilt. So during my teenage years, there was no theater. And it was like, you know, I can't wait to get away to see all these things. And then now it's like when I go back and I go see a play in my hometown, it's like, oh, my God, this is so good, you know? Right. And so, and so you mentioned how your grandfather was in mm. amateur dramatics, mm. right? So there's like this lineage of arts. Would you say that? Well, I feel like there's like this lineage of um, stunted arts. So my granddad was like apparently a really good actor. And his friend actually, he was supposed to be... He had some chance, apparently, to be in like the first Titanic film, Whoa. like back in the 40s or right. something. And his friend actually went and was in it and was like, and actually had a fairly successful career as an actor. But my granddad had to look after the farm, so he couldn't go. Oh, and then he actually died at 50, in his 50s, when my mom was like 15. And then my mom, when she was 21, she had like a devastating car accident where she had to relearn how to read and write and speak, and she's paralyzed. So I really, and I, I remember someone coming up to me, the caretaker at the church hall for my parents' like 30th wedding anniversary, and he was just like, your mother was amazing. You know, and you could just see it in his eyes that like he could remember my mother on the stage 40 years previously Man. when she was 16. And you could just see how it stayed with him. So I really feel like, you know, if my mom hadn't have had that car accident, she really would have, like, done something in terms of performing. And, you know, she probably would have went to London or whatever, but it was, like, 1974, and it was the Troubles, and and she just, you know, she wasn't able to have a job after that. Like, she certainly couldn't, like, learn lines or any of that kind of stuff. And I mean, she's still amazing. Like my mom, oh my God, like all she has to do is just give you a look. Like she can just communicate more with just these facial expressions. And she was the one who really taught me, you know, she'd be like, do it again, do it again. When I was preparing for the fish and everything, yeah. she'd be like more expression, you know, and put more emphasis here. And, you know, just, she was like my, you know, she trained me up. Right. So when you yeah. say stunted, uh, stunted arts lineage, mm. do you then feel there is a bigger burden on you? Because like you're representing, right? You're representing two generations, three mm. generations. Yeah, I mean, I feel incredibly blessed to be alive now. Whenever I look back at what the reality was for my forefathers, my foremothers, yeah. For the generations before me, like it was really, really sucked. Yeah. You know, it, to be to be Irish, to be Northern Irish then, and and also as a woman and as a queer woman, it's like I feel like I'm so lucky that like finally I get to be an artist, I get to be a performer, I get to be gay. You know, like wow think of all the people before me in my bloodline who didn't get to do that, you know? So, and, and also because, you know, my mother just 
basically had like you know the worst possible thing that could happen happen to her at like 21 you know while her drama teacher was driving the car so oh my god yeah <laughs> spill the tea oh my god yeah so he was like 10 years older than her but anyway yeah <laughs> that sounds like a scandal yeah it's a little bit scandally but you know it was 1974 so there was no internet <laughs> And there was a lot of other stuff happening in Northern Ireland at the time. So I mean, probably got a little bit, you know. Close one eye. Bloody Sunday probably overshadowed it or something. So I really had to like, as much as I feel so grateful that I have this, um, this push to like make the most of life and like live two lives, three if you count my granddad, like, and and realize how lucky I am and how blessed I am and how, you know, amazing I can open my mouth and, like, words come out. Like, my mom doesn't get that. Yeah. My mom doesn't get to open and close her hand, yeah. you know? So that's, like, an amazing thing. That's an amazing experience to have, like, as a child, right? To be brought up by a disabled mother. Like, not many people have that experience, really, because everybody thought my mom was just going to be, like, a vegetable in the corner for the rest of her life, you know? And she like fought that. And but at the same time, like me as an individual in my own body, in my own life, in my own time, I also had to like kind of let go of that and be like, I'm living my life. Mm-hmm. I'm not living for my mother. Yeah. I'm this is this is it's enough, just me, you mm. know? Mm. To to represent but also be your own person, mm. right? I, I like how you talked a bit about community and how there's this, this strong community background from when you grew up. Mm. Do you think that is the reason you now do so much of community work? Like we're doing events and organizing events and curating events. For sure. Like my dad was, he actually did like youth and community work and he was worked in development in the local council. So he set up like a lot of youth centers and did a lot of stuff around like public rights of way and like access to the land. And, and way back they were also involved with the civil rights movement and the peace people as well. My mom was in the Simon community, which is a community for people with like homeless people and stuff. And they've always done voluntary community work like that's just like normal for me it was always and I got involved with like feminism stuff and um queer stuff in London um the Occupy movement I was like squatting as well when I was in London and doing a lot of stuff around squatting activism and press stuff with that so when I got to Malaysia it was only kind of normal for me to like organize events and to kind of try and do whatever I could to bring a broad base of people in. Mm. Like, I think that's super important. Like right from our like second event, we like messaged a bunch of people. We're like, Hey, you seem like you're interested. Why not come join, you know? And, and really trying to pull people in wherever we can Mm. and sort of see people and like activate them. And I super love that. Like, I just love, it gives me so much joy to see somebody who's kind of like, you know, their shoulders are up around their ears and they're kind of don't know what's going on, but there's sort of, you can see there's like a little spark in them. And then to just kind of draw it out and be like, yeah, you can do it. And how about this? And I've always just like, 
it's it's just like totally like natural yeah. for me. And I think that's part of whenever you come from a rural community, you know, there is no anonymity. Right. Like people remember people be like, Are you the toffee apple brogans? And my granny stopped selling those toffee apples in nineteen sixty four. Wow. Like, yeah. yeah. Hey, must it be really good toffee apples? Yeah. I, I want the recipe. Yeah, it sounds amazing. I don't know if there was just nothing else to buy. <laughs> the only sweet thing around amidst potatoes and I bacon. Think it was like very cheap also, so it was like affordable price point. <laughs> So it's that kind of thing where, you know, everybody knows everybody. Nobody's a stranger. Everybody's going to date your ex. Like, there's no opportunity for, like, block or, you know, um, well, I'll just not see them again. Like, that doesn't happen. (laughs) You You know, you like... see them in the next 30 minutes. Yeah, you can't walk down the street as a teenager smoking a cigarette because, like, your auntie's going to be there, you know? Right, right. So it's Which, got pluses and minuses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's funny because you mentioned the, the second event that you did because uh, if we track it, the second event which you did was where I performed mm-hmm. for the first time. And mm-hmm. three years later, here we are yeah. having this conversation. Yeah, and we've seen so many people who've come through, like just like you have, and literally the body language, you can see it in their in their physical body whenever they come to our show and they're so used to hiding, they're so used to um, presenting a version of themselves in the world, and then we provide this stage where they can like fully be themselves mm. and fully open up and be genuine and authentic and honest and be like clapped and cheered and wooed for that, you know? And I like to think that we have like one of the best audiences. Yeah. Like they're just so warm, they're so lively, they're so forgiving. You know, oh, also, yeah. and um, and then also just what I love about it is is what happens in between events. Okay. Because people meet, they collab, like friendship groups are formed. People get together, people break up, people get together again, then they come back and they see their ex. I'm also super. I feel like people will still come to our event even though they know their ex is going to be there. Okay. Which I think is like a super good sign. Yeah, like, like they, they could know, feel still somewhat safe. Even though safe you want to avoid yeah. your ex, like yeah. you don't want to avoid your ex enough to like miss our show. <laughs> like our show is worth seeing your ex. Right. <laughs> so it's it's um. And just so many other things have formed, like bands have formed. Yeah, I've seen so many bands like, form. Somebody said to me, oh my God, it was like, <sighs> she was like, you don't even know, like three people haven't committed suicide this year because of the support networks that they have got directly because of your show. Oh man. And that was like, for me, that was just like, oh my God, like this is why we do it. Yeah. Because yeah. like... That's the thing. There's so much isolation. And that's what you get in the city. Like, that's the thing. It goes back to being a country person again. Like, there's... It's a funny thing. There's, like, nothing like the loneliness of being surrounded by millions of people. Yeah. That's the word, right? The loneliness of being surrounded by millions of people. For those of you who don't know, this podcast is produced by X. Malaysia's first ever poetry podcast. Check them out at Poet X Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And now, back to the episode. I like where we've gone a little with regards to 
you starting very early on and things like that. So do you want to do you want to sort of date yourself? Let me know if you want to. Mm. Um how long have you been writing or mm. doing poetry and things like that? How many years? Can we track it a little? Okay, bit? so I'm 34 now. Okay. And I started like writing and performing my own poetry when I was about 8. Okay. So that's you know like 93 or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wouldn't really count that cuz that's just the juvenilia. Yeah. But um I guess like I definitely had like quite a spurt in my like late teens. Um I had like uh busy busy I was sexually assaulted by my ex my ex-boyfriend. Okay. And and that made me write a lot of stuff. Okay. Because it's like I couldn't talk about it. Yeah. So I wrote about it. Right. And then when I went to uni, um I I set up a poetry event with my partner who's actually doing super well as a rapper these days. He was in London, he was in KL, he performed at I got him on it with Walls Could Talk. Okay. Um What's, he's, what's his name? he's called Hadarumadi, but he performs okay. under the name Brother Portrait. Okay. And he does a lot of like MC stuff and he's brilliant. You should check him out, Brother Portrait. And We ran a poetry thing together at uni when I was 18, so that was like 2003. This is not the same ex who assaulted you. No, different. Okay. Ex. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Just clarify. No. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was a different. I was one. like, um, No, okay. that was after. That was okay. u- this okay. was uni. Okay. okay. He was like back in Ireland. Okay. And um and then I um then I got really into MCing. Okay. So I used to do, like rap and I was part of this um uh like DJ collective we like had our own sound system we had like 2k basements and stuff and <laughs> we used to like bring up DJ, DJs from London because we were in York and it was like this crappy little tiny little cutesy town that like nothing was happening in and everybody was going to Leeds so we decided to set up our own event Did you um, have a did you have a name um, for yourself? For me, yeah, yeah, I was called Catalyst. Okay. 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 <laughs> so cheesy. <laughs> so bad and um and I was doing a lot of of that because kind of like that's where the mic was mm. like there wasn't a whole lot of poetry going on sure. and we'd kind of done a few poetry events and whatever and blah, 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 but you know having the the DJ nights that we ran were like super popular we'd have like 200 people and then I'd MC at that and also it gave me a lot of event experience like I'd be on the door I'd be doing decor and this was like back in the day All right, this is like 2005. Okay. This is when you printed flyers. Right. Right. This yeah. is when you went around shops and asked the shop, "Can I put a poster in your window yeah. of something called Herbal Mafia that has a <laughs> cannabis leaf and a base bin on it?" <laughs> right? And it's so funny because now um I was doing that with another partner and now he runs like the best underground venue in New York. And he's still doing it. He's still there. His venue is booked up like six months in advance. Damn. It's like where all the people go who aren't going to like the the York Opera House or whatever. Like it's the it's the the underground kind of that venue, and um, it's amazing. They're still doing it, still cranking it out. Like you know, 13 years later, wow. still banging it out. It's amazing. So I got I had a really that was like a really awesome experience for me of being able because it was like it was my stage you know it was like these DJs were my friends I was organizing I owned the mic literally I bought it you know <laughs> <laughs> so you can't take it away from me you right. know so that was a really good place for me to kind of you know 
hone my craft and build my skills and everything. And then I left York. I kind of got a bit sick of it because like one of our events got closed down because of the neighbors and it was too loud. And I did get a little bit tired of like messed up people. Cause obviously if you're running like hip hop and drum and bass and whatever nights, people get really messy mm. and then they'd like fight and stuff. And I've never been a big drinker. Like okay. it's, I've always one of these people who likes to be in control. Mm. I'm always running the night. Like, so I have to be like... Yeah, like sober in uh, gear, right? Yeah, so then I'm the one who has to break up these two idiots who are like like making all this noise, jeopardizing our event, not even realizing what the bigger picture is here, you know? So I kind of got a little bit tired of it, like living in that in that way too because we had like this big house where like there was like six DJs and there was like decks in every room and I had a real job like setting up cooperative businesses in schools so I had to wake up at six in the morning and drive two hours and do a workshop and they were all there like (laughs) (laughs) and and these events would finish what three o'clock four o'clock yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. and then it would be like after party at ours and oh my god yeah so that was like my early 20s and um and then I went back to to Northern Ireland because um, I got made redundant and um, and then I was in Belfast and I went to this uh, poetry slam and I won it. And this is 2008. Wow, okay. So I won like the Belfast Poetry Cup and it was great because I got like my thing from a guy called Lem Sissy. I don't know if you've heard of him. He performed at Georgetown last year. He's at Ubud this year. Like he's... He's like top flight UK poet. Yeah. So like he gave me my cup in like 2008, whatever. Wow. And also what was cool about that was they had this education thing where they were putting poets in school. And like, uh, no offense Belfast, but there wasn't really that much high quality um you know, it's a small city, yeah. right? There wasn't so many people going around. And I had experience of doing stuff in schools. And I'd already been perform- doing my poetry for quite some time. But at that point, it was much more like more on the rap side because I'd been doing the rap thing. Mm-hmm. And then this was like a bit more poetry. So I got to do these workshops in schools. And I was like on the Falls Road, which anybody knows anything about Belfast. It's like the super Republican like notorious for the troubles kind of place, like very much the, the dodgy side of town. And I was there doing poetry workshops in these, um, this like all boys primary school. This is starting to sound like some (laughs) biopic slash movie, starring Hilary Swank. It was really crazy. It was like dangerous minds, (laughs) (laughs) except everybody was white. (laughs) And then, um, and I got paid. I okay. got paid £27 an hour. Wow. I know. <laughs> and then I was like, ooh, what's this? <laughs> you know, is this like a thing that I could do? Yeah. And that was amazing because in a way, being in a small city like Belfast, I could stand out. Like I got to support Skinny Man for any like UK hip hop fans out there. I might know who he is. Um, I got to warm up for um, Scroobius Pip. Um, he's awesome but anyway these are like back in the day people this is 2008 people um or two yeah so when I went then I was like Belfast just got too tough it was like the credit crunch really hit Northern Ireland like so hard and I kind of couldn't be doing with it anymore like 
um, I was working for the Afro Community Support Organization of Northern Ireland. <laughs> and it was like, what? the pay was really bad and everyone kept fighting and like using me as their like fight pawn. Oh my God. So it was just, and I was just like, oh, you know what? And then I just decided, I was like, screw it. I like went on Gumtree, find someone looking for a nanny. I went to London within the week. I just okay. went and was a nanny in London. And um, I volunteered with, the, I did internship with the Fair Trade Foundation, trying to go back into fair trade. Because that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to do development. I wanted to do, like, um, you know, income inequality work, social enterprise stuff. I'd um, spent some summers in Kenya. And Kenya was a massive inspiration for me as well. Like when I went to Kenya, I'd spent a year in England and then I went to Kenya and I felt more at home there than I had in, in England and just felt totally. And also I was studying a lot of post-colonial literature, South African politics, Latin American politics, post-conflict uh, reconstruction. So I was all in this kind of decolonize the mind, post-coloniality, impact of English kind of tip and and also kind of because I felt so foreign when I got to England that was a massive vein of work that kind of yeah. erupted out yeah. of me because it does kind of erupt yeah. you know yeah when it wants um, to come out it comes in those out. moments yeah. when you're just mm. like don't want to have to explain yourself to another fucking English person apologies for my language yeah no put a disclaimer at the beginning <laughs> and um Yes, yeah, so then I went to London and I just like hit up the open mics. I just, I had my travel card from my, doing my internship and I would just open mics, open mics, open mics. There was like one year I did a hundred gigs in one year. I was wow. like the Juliana or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like the Juliana hang. Yeah. And, um, and then I won this slam and then I got to go to Berlin where I met a bunch of people and... I won this other slam where I got to represent London on the Radio 4 um, UK slam. And that was cool because, like, my parents came over and they're, like, big Radio 4 people. Mm. It's, like, middle-class radio. And they were just, like, no. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the thing. They've always been, like, super supportive. Yeah. And then I just... And it was... The thing was when about... The, it was so unstable. You know, the work was so unstable. It was so hard to work in the NGO world. And I was already feeling like it was just neo-colonialism and that I didn't really want to be a part of it. And it all felt so unstable. It was like, I might as well be a poet. Yeah, yeah. And by that point, I had also started squatting. So okay. I was living in an abandoned bowling green in Oof. Balham. Okay. And my friend, my best friend, who's amazing, Pakistani... She was like, why don't you just go for it? Why are you messing around with all this fair trade stuff? Why don't you just, just see where the poetry takes you? And that was a moment. Okay. That was like a sliding doors moment. Okay. Because, you know, she'd grown up in Karachi and then come to London when she was like 14. And she's from like a fairly well-to-do family. And she knows loads of writers. And like her, she knows, you know, those kinds of people. But... I didn't know those kinds of people. Like, I never thought that I was allowed to be an artist. Okay. It always seemed like something that, like, rich people did. Right. Right? Yeah. Do you like, get me? Like a, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, not something for the likes of me. Yeah. Okay. Right? Yeah. And she gave me the permission. Mm. And she used to really help me, like, edit my work and stuff. She'd be like, you were lazy here. 
Ooh. <laughs> that's such good feedback though she's amazing she yeah. worked for Penguin like now okay. she like is so in demand for like she births books for like Love hardcore it. professional writers okay. she is phenomenal okay. and she has a searing eye Oof. And she will just, but it's like from a place of love, you know, right, thankfully right, right, I, right, right. I got into her life just when she decided like no more. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I can just imagine her writing for Penguin, like writing emails to let uh, authors and being like, you were lazy here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And they love it, you know, yeah, because there's so many yes men in the world, yeah, yeah. you know, so she really gave me the permission. Okay. And I remember that conversation so vividly. So that was about... I was about sort of 26 at that point, maybe. Um, and then I, yeah, so, and I was like, then I was like a full-time poet person okay. for between about um, 2010. Okay. Until, and the big turning point really was I got onto this um, MA course. It was like the first in the world that was set up by this amazing guy called Peter Kahn. Okay, Masters of Art? Yeah, it was, um, he mm. basically convinced Goldsmiths to, with their writer teacher MA, to have this spoken word education program. And then he convinced the school to like have us in. We'd be in one day a week with him. We'd like shadow him and then we would teach a class and then he would like critique us in the class. And then we'd also do the masters part-time over two years. And then we'd also have like tutorials with him where we'd like write and we'd critique each other's work. And I was there with all these like, you know, five amazing poets like Raymond Antrobus, who's a Ubud, right? You know, Raymond Antrobus. (laughs) Finally, a reference I get. (laughs) Right. So he was my classmate, Indigo Williams, who is phenomenal but kind of like keeps herself on the down low Keith Jarrett who's fantastic phenomenal um like you're gonna know him sooner or later um also a guy called Pete the Temp who just published a book about the history of spoken word and also Dean Ada who's an amazing queer poet who does awesome queer people of person of color type stuff um so I was there with this in like this amazing hothouse surrounded by these fantastic people, um, 50% queer. Um, and also actually like, you know, there was like two white people there. Wow. So it was also majority people of color. Yeah. So that was amazing as well. Um, I guess if you don't like, there was just one white English guy. <laughs> 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 so it was, it was, phenomenal and and also I got paid Mm. like I got my master's almost all paid for and then I got to walk into a job as a poet in a school four days a week on like 24k wow so it was like amazing yeah you know it was like okay like this is a job this is like something I can do it's a career it's a thing yeah yeah it's like an actual thing and I can actually get a master's and stuff and have my my like study of poetry in the classroom like in an academic journal and present at conferences in New York and stuff like that and Mm, you know so that was that was amazing and um I did that for three and a half years and then I met somebody Mm -hmm. and they were Malaysian Mm -hmm. and then my life took a turn. Yeah. And, and, and this person... <laughs> and, now we're, and now we're here. Yeah. And this person isn't even your current partner, right? No. It was yeah. it was all very... You know, we met in New York. I was presenting at this conference. And 
and we all like fell in love and stuff. And then I applied for this funding to come here and do a spoken word education project with Poetry Cafe KL. And then I got it and then they dumped me. The person. Yeah. Not Poetry Cafe KL. No. Just to clarify. Yeah. Okay. But uh, yeah, so then I was like, oh no, what did I do? I went and like, went and made some choices based on my heart. (laughs) (laughs) Silly. But also I, I think I had been kind of feeling like, you know, like I'd hit 30 and like London is hard. London is a hustle. Like, I had been there eight years. I had squatted 14 different buildings. I had lived in a boat, right? And people think it's cool, but it's basically like living in your car. Yeah. <laughs> but I it can seems imagine. cute. But yeah. it's, it's basically just imagine all the problems you would have living in your car. And yeah. add water. And then add water. Yeah, and fire. <laughs> we did oh, have a small fire. Oh, my God. Thankfully, we had all the things to put out the fire. But, yeah. yeah, it was kind of, I was just like, I was kind of, I was a bit done with London. And I kind of, I had a lot of pushes, but I didn't really have any pulls. Yeah. So I think when this sort of love interest came along, it was kind of like, all right, let's do that then, you know? And then whenever that fell apart, and I was kind of like, well... I already got this 5,000 pounds. I already, and I trained up my replacement. I already had a replacement and had set her up and she was all ready to go. And, you know, so I was like, screw it. I guess I'll just go to Malaysia then. What's the worst that could happen? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Many, many years later, here we are. Yeah, three and a half years later. I'm here and like, I haven't been saying la that often. Yeah. I've gone super Irish with you. I yeah, I love it. I love it. I, I love think it's because we're talking about Ireland. Yeah. I've gone yeah. really Irish. Yeah, yeah. But it's like, bring it back get me out, down right? the Pasamala. Uh, yes. Or, you know, <laughs> trying to get into a condo and yeah. it'll come out. It'll come out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but I think the reason why, so the idea of that question was also, you've had this, this long career, right? In terms mm-hmm. of all of the different things you've done. How do you still take care of yourself as an artist? Yeah, it's super tough. And it's something that I've really been like wrestling with recently because I've put so much energy and so much effort and time and money as well in a way. And also kind of loss of earnings when you think about it like that too um, into the event that we've been running. With your current Uh, partner, yeah? Yeah. And... It's amazing, and I'm so proud of it. Yeah. And I'm so proud of the community that we've built, and and I'm, and it's 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 brilliant. But because what we do is so hidden, there's like this element of myself as an artist where it feels like when I got to Malaysia, at least like six months in. Anyway, because when I got here, I had like 15 gigs in 30 mm. days. Yeah. You know, I had yeah. like. New person. Yeah, I just had like, I'd stacked it up, you know, I'd really like gone for it. And, and I went and performed in other countries around the region and all that kind of stuff. And then now I'm, 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 you know, I've got my day job and my visa and stuff like that. And, and we've got the event and then we're running all this other stuff as well. So, I mean, we're doing like 15 things a month on top of my job. Yeah. So it's like, I just don't really have like the time or space to put into like me. Yeah. And as your an own artist. brand, right? As an artist. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I, I'm so, 
I always do that. Like, even I'll put, put loads of stuff in with, like, um, you know, other artists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then there'll be this moment where I'm like, hang on a minute. <laughs> yeah, what Why about me? What about me, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. And I think there's also this kind of thing that you fall into where people get used to seeing you as a host yes. and as an event organizer and as a very busy person. Yes. And then they for, they think like, they, do, they don't think to ask you. Yeah. You yeah, know? They're like, oh, she's too busy. Or she's busy running that event. Or she's event. <laughs> or they didn't see me do poems. Yeah. They like forgot I did poems. Mm. You know. And I mean, I love hosting. Yeah. I love programming. I love providing a stage for like the baby the baby artists mm. and for the up and comings and yeah. I love seeing them blossom and flower and like fly off to other things and that just gives me so much joy I mean I think that's the other thing is like actually you know what if I just like continued on like okay maybe doing my spoken word education work if I'd actually like pulled my finger out and done my poetry collection like I was supposed to do like five years ago or whatever when like Burning Eyes said they wanted to like publish my book and mm. I just never sent them anything. Could you still um, go back, do you think? Or have I, you, is that, hmm. I think the thing is that their business model is like, let's publish spoken word poetry, right? And where they sell it is whenever the poet does a tour. Okay. And then if I'm not in the UK, then how me the having it, then how does the book sell? Right, and then if I'm publishing in the UK, then it's going to be at a price point that is not accessible for the Malaysian audience. Yeah. So actually, now it makes more sense in a way for me to, um, like, find a publisher do it, here. Either find a publisher Asia. here. Yeah. I mean, the other thing is that, like, I mean, Bern and I are great. They do awesome stuff. They've been so important for spoken word because all these, I mean, I remember when Bern and I started and like all these poets that never had a book suddenly had a book, yeah. you know, and that was amazing. But I kind of heard like there wasn't a whole lot of editorial support. Okay. And I didn't, I've never really felt very comfortable about my work on the page. Yeah. I've always felt like it stands up because of my voice. Mm. Because people love my voice. Right. And because of my physicality on the stage. Yeah. And because, like, you know, I'm a woman and I'm queer and I'm Irish and all that kind of stuff. And I think there's just this, like, insecurity that my words are not enough. Right. As words on paper. Oh, I resonate with this so much. Right? Yeah. So, and I didn't just want to be like, here's a Greatest Hits album. Because mm. Greatest Hits albums kind of suck. <laughs> and... You know, you want, I like, I want an album, like I want a concept, like I want a thing, you know, and, and I kind of wanted like a publisher or an editor or somebody who might help me with that, you know, yeah. help, help me whole... birth it, right? Yeah, Whereas yeah, they're kind of yeah. more like, okay, well, send us your poems yeah. and like, we'll, we'll just put it all and, together and, and we'll, we'll publish them, you know, which is awesome. Yeah. I mean, I'm not dissing Bern and I in any way. Yeah. Because they're great. Yeah. And lovely people mm. and do great stuff. Um, and I really should have just sent them a bloody manuscript and not been so stupid about it. But anyway, you know, that's life. I, yeah. I think because I was teaching, mm. I was doing my spoken word education stuff. I was doing my master's. It was just, you know, when you're waking up at seven o'clock every morning and cycling seven miles to school and trying to do all these things and also doing a master's, it's really hard it's a lot. It's a lot. to also spend time with your poems. Yeah. And yeah, now... 
And I think also there was a part of me, like you always do this, right? Like there's something that you really should do and then you don't do there's it. something stopping you and then yeah. you make up all these excuses. Oh, Why? Yeah, the resistance. Yeah, so probably yeah, yeah. another excuse I was making up was like, I didn't want to just be with a spoken word publisher. Oh, you wanted like a book publisher. Yeah. Right? Like a so what I'm thinking I want to do now is, because I'll probably go back to Ireland at some point, because if we want to get Irish citizenship for my partner, then we'll have to do that. Mm-hmm. We have to go and live and work there for a year. So what I'm thinking is I want to send it out to loads of Irish poetry publishers mm-hmm. so that whenever I get back to Ireland... There'll be like a book waiting for me oh, nice. okay. to promote. Right, right. So that's what I'm kind of thinking. Okay, okay. And I sort of feel like it fits a bit better. And I kind of feel like maybe I'll be ready when it's like, because I've always, apart from that brief, like five months in Belfast, I've always been a foreigner. Mm. Yeah, Everywhere? I, yeah. And I remember my brother saying to me, it was kind of nice to not be the Irish person anymore. Mm. As someone who just looks at you, it's easy to just be, oh, she's a white woman. Mm. Right? So let's, let's I just want to just dive into that a little bit mm. on this idea of like whiteness and being a foreigner. How does that intersect with, say, your artistry here in Malaysia? Does it? And how, do, is it something you're aware of? Yeah, I think like when you're in a white body and you have blonde hair, I think that adds to it as well. Yeah. And you're female. Yep. Um, there's like a certain attention that you get. It's something that I first became aware of when I was in Kenya. And you just have loads of kids running after you being like, Wazungu, Wazungu, white person. Oh. And like literally like screaming, shouting, pointing, like right. 20 of them. Right. So, and, and it didn't really bother me uh, because when I brought my black boyfriend home, my mom's jaw dropped so hard <laughs> and she just stood there like gaping and didn't say anything for like half an hour. And then out of the blue, she went, can I touch your hair? Oh, my God. Yes. Okay. It was like the biggest face palm moment. It yes. was so bad. And I mean, obviously, the context is that my mom has a brain injury sure. and is uh, has no filter. Yep. She literally has no filter. Yep. Like, and she just never seen anybody who was that black before. Like, he is so black. Like, right. the most amount of black. Right. And gorgeous. Right. Like, the big lips, the, the whole thing. Like, right. And she just never, ever encountered that. Yeah. And like, I come from a super white place. Like, we have the Lees that run the Chinese. We have my best friend, who's one of my best friends from, from primary school, who's Hamdam, whose dad's Pakistani, mom's Irish. We have the Sings. Like, literally, we have... I love Do- how you can name them. Oh, I can right. name them. You can oh, name I can them. name yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. We have Dr. Pinto, you know? Right. And it's so funny because the, the Asians that we have are all doctors. Because ah. we're so rural okay. that we don't have any doctors apart from Asian doctors. Right. Yeah. Wow. So, like, that's my homogeneous time. Yeah, yeah. Right? But what we do have is sectarianism. So there's the Protestant part of town okay. and there's the Catholic part of town. Okay. There's the, you know, and never the two shall meet. There's the Catholic schools and there's the Protestant schools, you know. And then we had a bomb when I was 13. So it was like, and we grew up, you know, with all these, with all this violence, 
that you know in other parts of the world would be to do with ethnicity would be to do with skin color yeah but in my part of the world it's like everybody's white and we're still killing each other yeah you know for 40 years yeah so um and I remember the first time I saw black people I was in Halifax and I was about eight years old and we were like walking down this alleyway and there was like these three big black men and I was like whoa right right and like that's the thing like it's because if it's not it's, if it's not something you're used to seeing, it's an immediate othering, right? Yeah, it's like, like oh. if it's 1993, you know, and your mom doesn't let you watch TV, <laughs> you know, it's 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 like a difference is a thing, right? Yeah. And like yeah. sometimes, like my partner, my partner's mom would be like, "Oh, I hate the way people are just always like we were in Trunganu and people were like looking at me or whatever," but I don't let it bother me yeah. because I think back to my mom. And I think about what it was like for her that she was so whoa. Yeah. And it's not like a bad whoa. Yeah. It's just a whoa, you know? And and I've always been super like excited about difference. Okay. And but I think because I come from this place that's like so small, so rural, so white, that whenever I see something different, I'm like, yay, awesome, you know, that's great. Um so, yeah, so how yeah. does, that, yeah, so how does it interplay? Like, yeah. I mean, it's it's this, I mean, definitely now in the last kind of four years, I think, of like international wokeness and like definitely a massive kind of uh, backlash, for want of a better word, okay. a, a, about like white people. Yeah, yeah. It's... It's something that I don't really know how to navigate. Yeah. I'll be perfectly honest. Mm. I mean, I try to do whatever I can to use my privilege to create space for other people. And I'll always try and, like, pull people up. Yeah. Especially when they are women. And especially when they're queer. Yeah. And when I can see that they appreciate it and that they will make the most of it. Yeah. Because you can't force help on people. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. Not yeah. everybody wants to be helped. Yes. Not everybody wants your help. Not yeah. everybody sees it helped. Some yeah. people see it as patronizing. Yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah. And you have to be very... And I'm really grateful that I have got these awesome people in my life who've really kept me in check. Mm. One of which being my Pakistani uh, friend oh, who okay. I mentioned earlier, yeah. who'd always be like, yeah, don't be going around with some messiah complex, you know? Yeah. And I value that. Yeah. Like, I feel so lucky that yeah. I have those people who can tell me when I'm wrong from a place of love. Yeah. Like, from a place of, like, they're not going to give up on me. They're mm. not going to, like... X me out or yeah. whatever. Yeah. They're yeah. gonna they're gonna call me up and they're gonna check me in, you know? And like that's amazing. Sometimes you just need a starter, a push, to get the line to flow, to get the dough to grow, a leg up, an introduction to the crew, and after that it's up to you to mix. Need, fold, pay attention to time, heat, humidity, and watch it rise from something as simple as flour and water into something so tasty it's 
gone in half an hour. And then you're the keeper of the culture, entrusted with the starter that must be kept living, refrigerated and fed or thrown in the absence of a recipient when time will not allow space or tools to make use of magic jars passed down the generations, this bread of life that is living in the rhythm of your knuckles and the sweat of your song and the tap of your heel as you keep tradition living, bubbling, rising. Mm. Now, I've heard this poem a few times now, and I think in light of what we talked about today, this poem takes on like new meaning mm. of this, this sense of community and lineage and passing on. And ooh, it's extra special now, especially because mm. like now I have a bit of an idea of where it's coming from. Mm. Right? Oh, so special. Can we have the next one? Can. Pairing socks. Orphaned. Splayed out. On my parents' flowery duvet. My job was to pair them. We had a bag of singles that lived in the hot press. Some escaped, others joined. The action of balling together two separate articles must have been difficult for mum's paralyzed hand. Like the words she failed to pair, pulling commands from a brain of separated synapses. Dunner, washin, uniform, Catherine, now. I stopped pairing my socks when I started doing my own laundry, when I no longer had my parents' bed to display the singletons like the light box where the nurse failed to find a match for the pain that mum felt on the half of her that was lost. 10 years of solo laundry later, I rediscover my conditioning and I pair my socks. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I like the imagery of being able to see. I could see your parents' bedroom. I saw you pairing it all out. And again, it's it's so it's it's lovely based on the conversation we've had, you know, this this sense of time and how that changes you as a person and how that were these written recently, both of these poems? So recently I really haven't been memorizing any poems. Okay. I've been writing a lot. Okay. I just haven't been finishing or remembering. Okay. So Yeah, so I've for our listeners, you should know that Kat pulled out both of those poems from memory hmm. without even checking her phone. At least in the last hour, <laughs> right? It was just like full memory blast poems. Oh, yeah. I, love it. I mean, I used to be the kind of performer I would just turn up to a show with nothing. Ooh. And I could just do an hour. Wow. Like, I had so much back catalogue. And then when I started doing my master's, my, my tutor was like, you're not allowed to rhyme anymore. And I was like, what? <laughs> How do I write if I, don't have, if I don't rhyme and have eight beats in every bar? And then it just really like kicked the chair from under me. And it was great because it made me actually have imagery, which is much more important for poetry than just loads, you know, because 
I'm not a rapper. So it's, <laughs> not anymore. It stopped me from like <laughs> pretending like, you know, that I was some sort of rap aspirations. Um, although I can be tempted to bust one out every so often. Summon catalyst. <laughs> if I need to impress some 11 year old boys, I could be called upon, you know, to, to do a bit of a rap. But yeah. um, it was so what I found then was it was really difficult for me to memorize okay. because part of the oral tradition um, is the reason why there is a rhythm and there is a rhyme is because that's how we mem we remember. That's how we memorize. And I would always be like on my bike, like, and I'd run the poems over my head and I'd be on the train and I'd be memorizing them and I'd always memorize my stuff. And then when I got here, literally, since I come to, got to Malaysia, Breaking Bread is the only poem that I've written and memorized okay. since. Whew. Right? Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Like, what the hell happened? Yeah. Like, I don't we need even... to get you a bike. Yes. Right? <laughs> because when I got here, I also put on 10 kg. <laughs> right? Like, I am only just about getting getting back. Like, right? right? Aren't right. I doing so much better? Yes, yes. Do you remember great. how doing I great. ballooned? I, I don't know. I wasn't tracking, but oh yeah. Oh, my goodness. Based on pictures, yeah. That maybe, maybe. Oh, yeah. my goodness. Thank goodness I was in the shape of my life when I got here. I was doing yoga every day. I was cycling, like, like, 20, like 15 miles a day. I was, like, I could do 60 lengths of an actual pool Ooh. in an hour. Yo. Yo. <laughs> and then I came to Malaysia, and I swear, I just got so fat this is blame the nasi like ridiculously fat it was I mean seeing as we're talking about curry creative mm. you know you even call yeah. your podcast yeah. after, after food. food yeah exactly it was just crazy <laughs> <laughs> okay final final segment of this conversation okay final segment um, rapid fire Four questions. Mm. Uh, the idea, it doesn't have to be one word answers, but just the first thing off the top of your head. Like instinct, intuition, we're tapping into that, mm, right? Mm, mm, okay, mm. so the first uh, two questions are connected. So say someone is starting create uh, some kind of creative pursuit for the first time, okay? Uh, they're getting involved in creativity. They're doing something. What creative advice would you give to this new person? Be yourself. It's super cheesy, but everybody else is taken. Don't try and copy anyone else. Okay. Mm, uh, second part, same, connected to that question. New person starting out. Life advice. What life advice would you give them? Surround yourself with honest people who are more intelligent than you are. Oh, that's good advice. Okay. Third question. Um, what advice would you give, like looking back, you know, being young, uh, having talked about this, this career and stuff, what advice would you give to yourself looking back, like your younger self? Just record the album and do the book. <laughs> okay. People asked you to do it and you just didn't do it because mm. you were like, you didn't think you were good enough. Mm. Doesn't matter. Just get it out. Mm. Okay, last question. What advice would you give me from one creative to another? I think um, find the bigger stage. Mm. What, what spoken word really needs is TV. Mm. And it's needed TV since Def Jam Poetry ended. 
and it hasn't got it and it really needs it and even though like TV's dead let's be honest yeah right mm. okay. streaming platform it can be a Netflix special yeah. you know yeah. it's just that like Astro and all that kind of thing it gives a certain credibility right and I think what it really what spoken word specifically if you're talking about yourself as a spoken word artist sure. is that the f- the form needs more credibility mm. that it doesn't really have in the world um so yeah i would say take it to netflix yeah take it to netflix yeah there we go let's manifest that yeah let's manifest that netflix i mean netflix special netflix will commission anything so you know why not why not not, poetry yeah right like if russell simmons did it yeah Back then, yeah. and like that was cool. Mm. It was so cool, right? Yeah, like yeah. what happened? Like yeah. I feel like I was when I was doing spoken word back in two thousand and eight, two thousand and eleven, or whatever. We like really felt like it was on the cusp of something, and I feel like you know it's twenty nineteen already, and it hasn't really broken through like it was supposed to. Like we thought it was going to. I don't know if other people feel the same, but. And I feel in a way it's like kind of down to us as as poets to professionalize, you know? Mm. And and sometimes it's also just about finding the a certain income stream that works for you. Like for me it's been education. Yeah. Like that's what's made it possible for me to be a jobbing poet is not because I get paid for my poetry performances, but because I get paid for my intern- my educational work. You know, yeah, find like find the income stream that like works for you that you can like make money off that can be your time and can, but then also like still do the other stuff that like gives you joy and gives back to your community and fulfills all the things that are important to you and give you that performing impulse, but, like, find the the thing mm. that can, like, financially yeah. Yeah. sustain you, yeah. right? Mm. And, and also that a thing that feeds your craft. Because all my educational work has always fed my craft. Like, mm. it's it's only made me a better writer. Yeah. It hasn't... Maybe it's taken some time away yeah. that I might have used to, like, publish a book or whatever, mm. but... So what? Another poetry book in the world that's going to sit on your shelf and no one's going to read it. Like, I kind of feel like the work that I've done in classrooms Mm. and on queer stages in this country is so much more important than, like, me having my poetry book. Yeah. Like, do you get me? Me? Yeah. Me? Yeah. 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 So, yeah, find find the thing that, that can sustain you. Yeah. And then do the other stuff that doesn't necessarily pay. Okay. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Kat, thank you so much. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you uh, for but having me. I just want to acknowledge the work that you're doing, the events you're running, the communities you're building, and the stories that you are telling. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, and thanks for making this space for people to learn more about being creative in Malaysia. Mm, thank you. The Creative Curry Podcast is produced by Podex. Huge shout out to my producers, Safwan Sidik, Hanis Farah, and Azam Rais. This episode is also edited by Safwan Sidik. The show is created and hosted by me, Dinesha Katigesu. 
You can find me and my work online at dinesha.com. D-H-I-N-E-S-H-A.com. Thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to keep telling the stories that you are telling. Oh, 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 oh,